You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to our Writers Live series that's held here in the African-American Department. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of this part department, and I welcome each and every one of you here this evening for this exciting presentation. But before I begin to bring up D. Ray McKesson, who will be introducing Mr. Lowry, I do have a couple of announcements for upcoming programs. On March 16th at 6.30, we're going to have Helene Cooper. Um, New York Times columnist who will be at um, LBPH, the building that we partner with. Since we're under renovation, we have a lot of programs over there. So that's the Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. On March 23rd, we'll have Roxane Gay, who will be discussing her work, Difficult Women, again at the LBPH. And on Thursday, April the 20th at 6.30, we will have an evening with D. Watkins, and Liza Jesse Peterson, also at the LBPH. So um, please look at a copy of our Compass newsletter, which has all our events in it for this upcoming month and next month. And without further ado, Mr. McKinson. So hi, everybody. It's great to be here, and it's an honor to, to introduce Wesley. You know, one of the things that people forget about the protests in Ferguson is that it was illegal to stand still in August and September and October of 2014. And I say that because it has been interesting to watch people write about the movement and write about the protests who had very little proximity to any of it. And when I think about people like Wesley, we remember Wesley, and one of the reasons why the protesters, even when we disagree with him, respect his work, is because he was there. And one of the things about the police in St. Louis at the time is that they, they were like equal opportunity wild. So they treated the protesters and the media the exact same. And in the reporting about the movement, you could just tell the people who like were actually made to walk all night and all day. You could tell the people who got tear gassed, who ran from the smoke bombs, who hit out in the churches, who saw the, the um, you know, there was one early now, I'll never forget where, the police cars were driving, the SWAT cars were driving down residential areas and we were like hiding under cars and under steering wheels. And like there were people, there were a small set of reporters who were there on all of those moments. If you remember Wesley's first sort of national moment was when he got arrested in the very early days of the protest with Ryan at the Huffington Post. But I say all of this because he was a voice we respected because he was there. And the police would say something didn't happen. And then Wesley would be like, no, I saw it. Like, I, from the Washington Post, I was there. I saw it, and that was a big deal. When I think about protests at its root, it is this idea of telling the truth in public. And that what we did was that we used our bodies to tell the truth about Mike and Rakia and Nayana and so many other people. That we disrupted board meetings and commissions to tell the truth about the way they were or were not using their institutional power to benefit the lives of people of color. And when I think about Wesley, and if you've read the book, you know that he was with us on so many moments that you never saw on Twitter or never saw on Facebook. But I think about the most, uh, one of the most pivotal moments of the entire beginning of the protest uh, was the no indictment of, of Darren Wilson, the non-indictment. And that night, there were like five of us in like a random, uh, he was like a friend of a friend of his apartment. And Wesley was with us there that night when we all were live tweeting what was happening and he went with us as we went to the streets and West Florissant um, and his proximity to the movement, I think, again, and I say this because we don't always agree about how we interpret it, but his proximity made him a voice that we just all respected and that we all trusted in the space. And one of the hard things, and I can say this as somebody who was there, I got to St. Louis on August 16th and Mike got killed on August 19th, is that there's just such a difference between the people who write about the movement who saw it on the outside and the people who wrote about it and saw it sort of up close because they were personally implicated. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why I consider him a colleague in this work, even though we operate in very different spaces. Uh, but it has been important to us to have people who saw it and who who lived it. Um, so I'm excited that you'll get to hear him talk about the book tonight. I'm excited that you'll get to press him when you ask questions about what it was like to be a reporter 
And there were a small set of them, and I hope he talks about it, but there were a small set of them who were all friends, and we saw them being friends. So him and Yamish, who now writes for the New York Times, and um, Ryan, who writes for the Huffington Post, were like a little clique of reporters who were just like always around. They were always there. And they sort of privileged themselves as people who were willing to stay out as long as we were and were willing to write the stories. And not only in Ferguson, but in other cities. I remember being in uh, in Cleveland when the the Tamir protests were happening and I'm literally like just walking up at a site and I look over, I'm like, is that Wesley? Is that you? And like, it's Wesley. And I remember being in so many other cities where he was there and was being a truth teller. Another thing that people don't remember is that the protests in St. Louis were over 350 days that people remember it now as like a weekend or a month, but it was like a long time that we were in the street. Um, and it was important that people who cared enough to be there for the long haul. So I'm excited to introduce Wesley. He is an incredible voice in the movement, and I consider him a colleague. And uh, when we're not disagreeing, a friend. Thank you. Well, thank you, Duray. I appreciate it. I'm going to lose my jacket. It's a little warm in here. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dre. I appreciate it. And thank you guys for coming out tonight. It's a really beautiful night. I don't know why you're in here listening to me talk, um, but I really appreciate it. Um, it's, it's interesting to think, I was thinking as Dre talked about that, about how long it's been since, since early 2014 and how in so many ways it feels like the world has changed. Um, we live in a, diff- a bit of a different one. Um, when I do these talks, one of the things I like to do is I, I, I like to start off by talking a little bit about who I am and how I find myself here uh, as a means of explaining um, some of the decisions I've made and, and, and some of my reporting and my motivations for it um, before kind of transitioning it over to talking about the book and, and some of the things that are in the book. Uh, if you've read it already, um, you'll, some of this will sound familiar to you. But, you know, I, I never intended to have the job I have now. This wasn't what I wanted to do particularly. Um, I wanted to be a newspaper reporter. Um, That was the only thing I wanted to do. In fact, it was basically the only thing I was good at and still the only thing I am good at, right? I worked for my middle school newspaper and my high school newspaper and my college newspaper, um, much to the chagrin of my math teachers and science teachers whose classes I was skipping to go work for my newspapers. Um, I went to a good journalism school for college and interned uh, during the summers between uh, the school year. I took my first job at the Boston Globe where I covered city politics, uh, Boston Marathon bombings, the mayor's race. Uh, and then I got, took this job at the Washington Post. And the goal this whole time had been to, the goal the whole time had been to cover national politics. I wanted to go on a campaign trail. I wanted to cover a presidential election. It just seemed fun to me. It seemed sexy to me. It seemed like the job to have. If I was going to be a reporter, I had to be on the presidential trail. I remember watching my now colleagues, but then these reporters, these huge names. I watched their tweets from Iowa and South Carolina and New Hampshire. I saw them on debate nights doing their analysis, and that was what I wanted to do. Now, based on the timing of kind of when I was coming out of school and the work I was doing, 2016 was my goal. I was convinced that... Whatever I had to do, I had to be on the campaign trail in 2016. That 2016 was just going to be the biggest, most substantive, like, issues-based election that was ever going to happen, and I had to be on the trail for that, right? Now, as I I was working to do this, you know, I took the job in Boston. I was working for the Boston Globe, and the Washington Post came calling, and they said, you know, you're doing great work. We want you to come down. Uh, cover Congress for us, be on our national political team, and if you don't screw anything up or murder anyone or plagiarize, you can go on the presidential trail in 2016. So cool. I achieved this goal. I was really excited about it, and I set off covering Congress for a year. Now, I, at the time, when I took this job, had no idea how Congress worked at all. Um, Didn't really know the difference between the House and the Senate, had no clue who any of the players were, the politics of the the caucuses, but um, but I figured I'd learn, I'd figure it out, and so I went off to the Post to do that and spent about a year covering Congress, going to Capitol Hill every day. And I remember I was, it was early in the summer, I guess late in the summer, 2014, I'd covered Congress for a year, and I was on a trip. I was in Michigan uh, writing about a congressional primary in some race that I don't even remember who was running anymore. It was how inconsequential it was. And 
I'm there in Michigan, and my grandparents live in Detroit. And so I stop by their house to uh, get dinner or something on this trip. And as I'm there, it's a Saturday, and I'm scrolling through Instagram, the kind of photo app. And I don't know what all of you, you guys, if any of you use Instagram, um, I don't know what your Instagram feeds look like on a Saturday. But for me, on a Saturday, it looks like everyone's evidence of their Friday night. Um, and so you got a lot of parties, people in bars, people at clubs, people hanging out at sporting events. But I also, you know, I follow a lot of journalists, and so I always have a mix on my social media of people's news accounts from their station and that kind of stuff. And so as I'm scrolling, I get to my friend Brittany's account. And now Brittany is a reporter in St. Louis, or was a reporter in St. Louis. She was a weekend anchor and reporter at the CBS affiliate. And she lived in this suburb called Ferguson. Now, on this day, on this Saturday, it was actually the day of her engagement photo shoot. And so it's her and her fiancé, Mike, and they're leaned up against a waterfall or whatever it is they're doing for their engagement photos. Um, And as she's leaned there and the photographer is taking the photos, she starts getting these text messages and these phone calls. And people are saying, hey, do you know what's going on over in Ferguson today? Have you seen what's happening? There was a shooting. People are upset. And Brittany calls the station. She says, hey, I'm hearing about a shooting in Ferguson. I guess a lot of people are upset about it. Maybe people are outside. What's happening? And they say, oh, don't worry about it. Maybe we'll send someone. We're not sure. It's probably not a big deal. We're short-staffed. It's a Saturday. Who knows? So Brittany is an older sister to me. We've been friends for years. But um, she, like me, uh, doesn't let go of a good story when she knows about it. And so she, she is just fuming. She's upset. I think something got to go cover this thing. People are upset. I keep hearing about this. And so finally she turns to Mike, her fiancé, the photographer, and says, I've got to go, and takes the car keys and leaves the engagement photo shoot. So now he's stuck here with the waterfall and no pictures, and, and leaves to drive into Ferguson. And she arrives as one of the first reporters on the scene and starts taking photos, starts taking videos. There is a body still on the ground, uncovered. There's blood trickling down the streets. Family members start arriving. She, she interacts with Leslie McSpadden, Michael Brown's mother, um, and, and takes video of her getting to the scene and realizing that, yes, her son has been killed. She takes an image that goes viral of uh, Lucas Head, or Lewis Head, the uh, stepfather of Michael Brown, um, where he, on a piece of cardboard, has says... Um, the Ferguson police have killed my unarmed son today. And I'm in Michigan watching in my stream as photo after photo and video after video uh, are coming, coming to me from Brittany. The, fast forward two days to August 11th, 2014. I'm back in Washington, D.C. And I've got to, um, I've gotten to the office that morning. And I walk over to our national desk, and I, say, you know, I cover Congress, and I, and I say, hey, you guys doing anything with this Ferguson thing? People seem still upset about this. The, night, the second night, there had been more protest, more anger, and, and some of them had broken out into riots. There had been a gas station burned to the ground. And I said, what are we doing? Is that someone on this? What's the plan? And as I was having this conversation, an editor walked past and said, can you go? Can you just get on the airplane? I was like, yeah, why not? I sold the bag for my Michigan trip over at my desk. I went over there, got on the next plane to St. Louis to Missouri. Now, as I, as I landed in Missouri, I thought that this was going to be a three-day assignment. I was flying in on a Monday. I told my buddies that, that we didn't have to cancel our plans for Friday. I'd be back by then. Um, what I didn't know was this would eventually become a three-month assignment, where I essentially would live in greater St. Louis for the rest of August and most of September and most of October and then all of November as we covered protests that were quickly sprouting into a broader, more sustained movement as well as we awaited news of whether or not the officer who was killed would be charged with a crime. So, but I landed, and as I, as I land, I, I first I get in the car and I drive to what's going to be the first press conference held by Michael Brown's family. Now, this was a scene I'd been to before. I'd covered police shootings before in Boston and Los Angeles and other jobs. And so I get there, and what I see is not unsurprising to me. We're here in a, in a church. as a grieving family with T-shirts with their son's face now printed on them. The, these kind of declarations that they're going to demand justice. A civil rights attorney, Ben Crump, who I knew, who'd worked with Trayvon Martin's family, who'd just flown in, just landed, talking about how this is not some type of isolated incident, but rather that this is the next name in a long line, invoking cases like Eric Gardner and John Crawford, Jordan Davis and Trayvon Martin. 
And so I leave the press conference and I go to the NAACP meeting. Now, this is the first sign that perhaps this was going to be different. At the NAACP had, had flown in. They'd called a community town hall. There had been two or three days of unrest. There were still a lot of unanswered questions. And as I arrived, what I saw in this, in this additional church parking lot was 100 or 200 people standing in the parking lot. Now, my safe assumption, knowing my own logistical challenges sometimes, was that I'd either arrived way early or most likely really late and the meeting was already over. Um, there was a time zone thing. I was, so I, I was just assuming I'd screwed this up. But I get out of the car, and as I'm walking towards uh, the front, what I realize is, is it's, this is not people who are waiting for the meeting to begin, nor is it people who have just gotten out of the meeting, but rather that this church has already filled the capacity. There are five or 600 additional people inside, and that these 100, 200 people have decided they are going to wait, standing under the sun in the asphalt in August, until the meeting is over so that people who are inside can come out and tell them what was said inside. Now, that was striking to me. I'd covered a lot of community meetings. I'd been to protests following police shootings before. And what was often true previously was that people made a lot of noise, but, but that there wasn't necessarily the will to sustain. This clearly was going to be something different. What I did not long after that uh, was at that same meeting, I met up with someone whom I now know very well, and Duray knows pretty well too, Janetta Elzey. Now, when I'd been getting on the airplane earlier that day, I had, as I was getting on the airplane, I had sent out a tweet or something where I'd said, look, who should I talk to once I get to Ferguson? I'm flying out for this story. I'm going to cover it. Who should I talk to? Who should I reach out to? And everyone was like, you have to find this girl, Netta. I'm like, all right. She's everywhere. She seems to know everything. She's at the protest. She's tweeting. She's... And so I had sent her a message on Twitter. Um, and so we're, I sent her a DM, I'd privately messaged her, and I said, look, Ms. Wesley, I'm a reporter from the Washington Post, I'm getting on an airplane right now to come to Ferguson, you clearly know what's going on, I want to tell this story the right way, can we meet up? She goes, sure, here's my number, meet me at the NAACP meeting, I'll be there, and then we'll, we'll show you around. Now, I still tease her about this a little bit, but immediately following our interaction, Netta had gone and essentially live tweeted what our conversation had been. And so she immediately sends a tweet. Guys, can you believe it? Now there's a Washington Post reporter coming to tell the story the right way. I was like, no, no I can see your tweets. I follow you. Um, and so, but she, but, but it, it spoke to, you know, so much of what she had done in those early days had been critiquing the media coverage. It's one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to her because she, she seemed to have this pointed criticism time and time again of how the local media was covering things. Every time a word would be used, when the residents of Ferguson were described as a mob in a headline instead of angry residents, right? Um, when there was an assumption of guilt on the behalf of Michael Brown, the young man who was killed, who at this point we know nothing about. She, she would fire back and, and, those, and those critiques would pick up criticism. So I'm looking for Netta. I'm walking around through people, and finally I approach her. And I walk up, hey, Netta, I'm Wesley. We were talking online. Now, after she had live-tweeted the initial part of our conversation, what I said was, hey, I'm going to be the light-skinned guy in the sweater when I walk up. That's me. I'll come say hi. And so Netta, being Netta, um, looks at me. When I was introduced to myself, she goes, you didn't say you were going to be this light-skinned. I, like, I was like, I can't win with you already. And, and, and so she goes, and I go, and so I start explaining, you know, well, well, you know, I'm biracial, I'm mixed, my dad's welcome. She goes, okay, well, we have already got a white friend named Wes. You can be 0.5 Wes. And so for the next six months, I was uh, 0.5 Wes to Netta. But as we start talking, I say, look, I, want, I need you to take me into, into Ferguson. I need to see where everything happened. Let's go to where Michael Brown was killed. Let's go to where the protests have been. Let's go to where the riot broke out last night. And let's see, show me. And so I put her in the car and drive back into the city. We drive past some of the storefronts now that have been boarded up or places where windows have been shattered. We drive past the Quick Trip gas station. We get to this, this point, this place where there are still residents in the streets. Um, the sun is starting to go down. It's 6 or 7 o'clock at night. Pe children have gotten home from their summer camps and wherever they've been. And the police have started to attempt to clear the streets. And what the people were saying in response was, you know, the police are saying, go home, get out of here. And they're saying, this is our home, this is where we live. We're on the corner of our street. You go home. 
And so I stand there and I start doing interviews. I start talking to people. I, I talk to some of the homeowners. I talk to some of the young people. Um, and as we're beginning to have this conversation, the tear gassing begins and the rubber bullets start to be fired. Netta gets hit with one of them. I get engulfed in a cloud of tear gas. In fact, one of the homeowners I'm interviewing kind of had to push me out of the way um, because there had been a canister that had landed near us. I hadn't seen it. And it began what was a three-month story that has since evolved into a three-year story. I, when I talk about the protest movement, one of the things I try to say and like to say, or what I say to people, is that I think we make a mistake sometimes. And we, but we, I mean readers, people who are looking at activism that perhaps we don't understand. I think we make a mistake when we try to understand it in totality to begin with, and we don't start with individuals. You know, I, one of the reasons I wrote this book was because after two or three years of covering the protest movement, I would still get emails and phone calls from Washington Post readers. And what they would say is, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why are they in the streets? Why are they upset? Maybe I understood that last one, but I don't get this one. Or what are they still upset about? Didn't we talk about this before? And I found that pretty frustrating. As a journalist, as a reporter, it's my job to explain things, to educate people. If you could read my article about the protest and not understand what the protest was for, I clearly must have not done my job very well. And so what I tell those readers when I do these stories is I tell them that not to look at the 10,000 people in the street, but to start by trying to understand one person. So you're telling me you don't get it. Tell me you don't understand it. What's wrong with these people? Can you understand one of these demonstrators? Can you understand one of these protesters? Can you understand their life and their story? Can you understand the... The forces at play in their lived experience that have brought them to the point at which they believe they need to be in the street right now. Because if you could understand one person, you could begin now perhaps you could understand 10, and now you can get to the 10,000. And so through the book, what I attempt to do is I attempt to tell the stories of many of the young people who I met through the two to three years that I was covering this protest movement, going city to city, shooting to shooting, and trying to explain and unravel why one of why each of them has entered the streets. Because if I can do that, and I can get you to understand them, then perhaps you can understand all of it. One of the first stories I tell in that book is the story of Netta. Now, she, like me, had been sitting on her grandmother's couch the day Michael Brown was killed. She um, was sitting there, scrolling Twitter, and someone she knew said, hey, there's a shooting near St. Louis. Don't you live there or around there? And Netta starts looking. She starts following the tweets. She sees Michael Brown's body on the ground. She sees that, that crowds are starting to gather. She's looking at these images and these videos. And Janetta decides to go out and see these things and document these things for herself. Now, one of the reasons she did that was that she had had a friend killed by the police earlier that year. Uh, her Stefan, one of, one of her best friends, was one of the last people killed by police in St. Louis prior the shooting of Michael Brown. And what she remembered was, as she watched all the coverage of that shooting, as a friend, wanting answers, wanting to know what happened, wanting details, she watched as her friend was described as a felon when he wasn't. She watched and she read every comment on every article, which we all know we're not supposed to do, but she read them because this was about someone she knew. And she watched as these readers, her neighbors, the people who she interacted with every day, described her slain friend as a thug who deserved it. Why are we wasting time talking about this guy? He got what was coming. And so that day in August, as she saw now crowds gathering around a new police shooting, she decided that she did not want to let what happened to her friend happen to another young man. That it happened to Stefan, but this is not going to happen to Mike. That if I'm there, they can't lie. And so she showed up, and she took pictures of of the tear gas canisters and the rubber bullets, of the crowds gathering, of the women who were saying, we want to go to the body to see if he's still alive, and the officers and their dogs who pushed those people back. She gained this reputation in many ways as one of the first people on the ground telling these stories. But she was doing so with such a, a vivid detail as well as a, a righteous indignation of that in many ways captured the ethos and the feeling of the residents of Ferguson and later the residents of dozens of other cities following these shootings. What was unique about Ferguson and what was unique about the movement broadly in this moment was that these were stories that did not come to light because of the mainstream media. The reason we know Michael Brown's name has nothing to do with any reporter. Um, now that can be hard 
for me to accept sometimes. I like to believe that the only reason you know about all this is because of all the great work we did. But the reality is, the reason we know Michael Brown's name, and think about it, that there are how many thousand Michael Browns who are 18 in the United States of America? It's not a particularly rare name. Um, why do we know the story of this man? He certainly isn't the only Michael Brown. He's not the only person killed by the police, not even the only person killed by the police on the day he was killed by the police. The reason we know Michael Brown's name is because the people of Ferguson insisted on having his story told. Now, actually, it's probably a year or two ago, actually, DeRay and I got in an argument about this. He, um, I used to use the phrase, I used to like the phrase, of, that you know, the role of the media is to give voice to the voiceless. This idea that we were somehow going to empower people who otherwise their stories were not being told. But he kind of challenged me on this at one point, and he framed it rather as these are not voiceless people, but rather they are people who are unheard. What was different in this moment was, was not that all of a sudden the people of Ferguson had a voice, but rather it was that they now had the tools to force us to hear their stories and hear those voices. That the first journalists on the scene were not people like me, and they also weren't local media reporters either, but rather they were people like Janetta Elson. They were people who showed up and now armed with cell phone cameras um, and video sharing apps who could now tell us and show us their experiences and tell us the story and the scenes of their lives without having to go through some media filter without having to convince the newspaper reporter that this is a story worth covering, without having to convince the TV cameras that they should send someone, that they themselves had a publishing power and ability to force these images in front of the eyes of millions of people long before the rest of us woke up to the reality that this was going to be a, a movement and rather, rather than a moment. I do think, though, that there is a role for the journalist in a social movement, and I think there's a role for the journalist in protest. You know, I think that often in journalism spaces we get in these arguments about are you a journalist, are you an activist, how do you balance those things, can you? Are they completely separate and is there a wall, is, is there room for overlap? But I think that any good journalist has to take the role of an activist in certain things. I think we have to be activists for transparency, we have to be activists for accountability, we have to demand information, we have to be in many ways <laughs> the, the muscle behind the people, forcing powerful people and powerful institutions to pay attention and to be accountable. One of the things I'm most proud of, and after this I'll shut up and we can take some questions, but one of the things I'm most proud of from the time I've spent covering these stories is a project that we worked on at the Washington Post that was born out of the streets of Ferguson. You know, during those first days I was on the ground, I would often, you know, run around doing a bunch of interviews. I would talk to activists. I'd talk to residents. I'd talk to the people of Ferguson. And so often what they would say is, this is a crisis. Black men are being murdered in the streets. They're being executed um, every day. And, and we need justice. We need something to change. And then, being a good reporter, I'd call up the police chief or I'd call up the, the police union. And they would say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's totally not true. First of all, police officers, most police officers never even pull their weapon. Second of all, we never kill anybody. And when we kill someone, they're definitely not unarmed black people. Everyone else is just making it up. And so I'd write my story. Oh, yeah. Residents of Ferguson say this, and the police chief says this. Who knows what's going on? And fortunately, I had smart editors. The smart editors who said both of those things can't be true. Either unarmed black men are being executed in the streets each day, or the police are never killing anyone. How can we, as journalists, seek that truth and then speak that truth? So we started by going to the, the people we expected to have this information. We called the police department. Hey, how many people have you killed? We called the state secretary of state. We had to, we, someone in Missouri must have this information about how many police killings there have been in the state of Missouri. And then we found out that, no, they didn't know. They didn't keep count. So being the Washington Post, we called Eric Holder's office. We called the Department of Justice, and we said, clearly you guys must know how many police shootings happen. You have to keep these statistics. And what they said to us was, well, we have a statistic, but it, we know it's not right, so you probably shouldn't use it. And that just raised our eyebrows. You know, being public records people and journalists, we had our, 
our, my inclination, my assumption, my naive assumption would have been that there'd be a file cabinet somewhere in the Department of Justice, and I could walk in with a little manila envelope for every single shooting, I'd go figure out every detail, every one, and by the end of the day, I'd know exactly how many unarmed black people have been killed. But in reality, what was true then and is true today, is that the federal government keeps no comprehensive statistics on who is killed by our police officers and under what circumstances. That there is a voluntarily reported number, a number in which the FBI every year calls the departments and says, can you let us know if you killed anybody? And some of them send a few names over, some of them don't. You know, according to those FBI numbers, not a single police killing has happened in the state of Florida in the last 10 years, not one. Uh, according to those FBI numbers, Tamir Rice was never killed by the police. Eric Gardner was never killed by police. There's no file for them. They're not there because their departments didn't report them. And so we started out on this project that sought to answer what we thought was a simple question and a question that was at the heart of these protests, that what black and brown Americans were saying in the streets was that they were being killed with impunity and with disparity. And what the police were insisting was that that was not true. How many people were being killed by the police each day and under what circumstances? And how many of those people were black? How many of them were unarmed? What we learned very quickly was the best way to figure that out was not to send a bunch of records requests because the police don't really have to answer questions like that. These shootings often have investigations that stretch out for years at a time. They often have the ability through their laws to shield information, the name of the officer who's killed someone, often even the name of the person who's been killed. What we learned was that the best way to find out about a police shooting was to check what the media had reported. That if someone had been killed by the police, some reporter somewhere stood next to the crime scene tape, even if it was only for one afternoon television hit where they said there's been an officer-involved shooting here on Cherry Street. But because of that one report, somewhere on the internet, people knew about the shooting. And so what we started to do was we started to every single day methodically search for any reported police shooting. And every time we found one, we would add a new line to our spreadsheet. And we'd go back to the department and we'd say, hey, Channel 7 reported there was a police shooting here. Can you tell us anything about it? At the beginning, we didn't even know what we were supposed to be tracking. We knew we wanted people's names, their race, their gender, if they were armed or unarmed. We didn't even really know what armed and unarmed meant then. Someone in a car without a weapon, but in a car armed? Is a toy gun a weapon? Is that person armed or unarmed? We ended up having all of those fights and debates, and we still have them. And as we started tracking this, one of the first things we realized was that this was happening so much more often than anyone had led us to believe. Those FBI numbers, while were incomplete, were being cited. They were being cited very often by police unions and other people to, to say that these protests were overblown and they were about nothing. Only 460 people get killed by the police every year, those numbers said. You know, and most, almost none of those people are black. Five months into our database, we'd found over 500 people that year who'd been killed by the police. By the end of 2015, we'd found 991 of them. So double what the federal government was, said was happening. As we began to drill in to those numbers, we, we found an array of truths. That certainly in many of the cases, in most of the cases, the people killed by the police are armed when they're killed. But that yes, there were large racial disparities in the use of, in the use of fatal force. That while black men represent 6% of the United States population, they, they make up 24% of the people killed by the police and 40% of the unarmed people killed by the police. That all of the people who had taken the streets were telling the truth about their lived realities. Beyond that, we began to drill in to the policy and the policy outcomes. It, one of the first things we found was that somewhere between a quarter and a half of the people being killed by the police are in the midst of some type of mental health crisis. You know, I say this often, but if a quarter of the people being killed by the police were diabetics, every police officer would have an insulin shot with them in their tool belt that the reality is the majority of our police officers have not received the training necessary to deal with someone in the midst of a mental health crisis, leading to shooting after shooting after shooting. Now, in the early days after Ferguson, what everyone thought the answer was going to be, not everyone, but what many people thought the answer was going to be was body cameras. 
surely if we put more cameras on more officers, it will deter these officers from using fatal force. And it'll show all these protesters that the majority of these shootings, the guy has it coming. That's what the conventional wisdom said. But the reality was very different. So we've continued our tracking. We've now tracked police shootings for all of 2015 and all of 2016 and all of 2017 and most of 2017, however far in we are now, right? And what we found was that there was a huge spike in 2016 in the number of these shootings that were captured on camera. It went from 100-something to well into the 200s, 300s. Now, part of this was because now any time a police officer stepped out of the car, people were pulling their cell phones out. Part of it was that the media now knew to ask for videos in cases before we might not have even asked if there was one. But a big part of it was that there were many more body cameras on many more officers. But what 2016 taught us was not that the videos would deter shootings. While there were 990 fatal police shootings in 2015, there were 961 in 2016, a statistically insignificant decrease. But not only that, but we found that there were many more shootings captured on camera, and that what the camera footage showed us was that more of the shootings fell into gray areas than even before. If you think about the names from 2016 that you know, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Keith Lamont Scott, Seville Smith. All of those cases are cases that would have been crime briefs just two years ago. Armed black man pulls gun on cop and gets killed. But because of video, because of what we can see with our eyes, because of, because of Philando Castile's girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, because of the bystanders by Alton Sterling, we can see with our eyes that these stories were far more complicated than an armed black man pulling a gun on an officer. That in reality, and we've seen in some of these cases, the officers, in fact, even been charged with crimes because of the videos we've seen. Now, where do we go from here? I, I think that's, I get that question a lot, um, and we talk often about what changes and what this means now in the age of a new and different president who doesn't necessarily support the ideas that the police need to be reformed. But I, I think that we have to further complicate our idea of what the, how the police should function in our society, what their role is and what they do. I think we have to continue asking questions about the many, the thousands of shootings that we have for years written off because of the assumption that a gun or a weapon must have meant this person deserved it and therefore signaled to us that we didn't need to scrutinize this use of force. And I think we have to continue to watch and now see what happens in these many departments that under the Obama administration came under heavy scrutiny and who have now been promised that that scrutiny is going to disappear. But I think that one of the lessons of Ferguson and of the broader protest movement is that we need to believe people. You know, police shootings didn't begin in 2014. Vigilante shootings didn't begin in 2012 with Jordan Davis and Trayvon Martin. That what we find time and time again through data projects like my own and, and others is that when we scrutinize these interactions and when we scrutinize the lived experiences of black Americans, the data almost always supports and backs up the stories and the narratives that black Americans have been telling us for generations that generations of Americans have talked about these interactions with police officers, have talked about the shootings, have, know the stories of the men in Milwaukee in the 60s who had the knife planted on him, know the stories of the men in New York in the 80s who were shot in the back. But that the majority of us, both our white majority and our, those of us in the media, have chosen not to believe and not to validate those black experiences. In Ferguson, in the early days, we would... the press corps, especially those of us who were there a lot, would talk about this. We would walk around doing these interviews, and everyone we talked to would tell us the craziest story we'd ever heard. We would hear stories about, yeah, I was playing basketball, and the cops came up and asked me if I was a pedophile and harassed me. I'm like, well, that's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, well, my dad had a heart attack in our kitchen, so we called 911, and the cops came instead of the ambulance, and they put our dad in the back of the cop car and handcuffed him. And I'm like, that just... And we would take notes, and we listen to these people. We talk to them, and most of those stories never escaped our notebooks. We looked these people in the eyes, we heard them tell their accounts, and we did not believe them. 
Four or five months later, when the Department of Justice came out with its report, that story of the man harassed after his basketball game was in there. The story of, of the people being harassed and harangued, the, the accounts of how fines and fees and warrants were being used to tax the poverty of the people of Ferguson existed there. And so many of us in the media looked at each other and said, we knew about this and we didn't write it. We didn't believe these people. You know, I don't know what happens next. I don't, I always make clear I don't speak for the protest movement or any of the organizations. I speak to them a lot. I write about them. But I think one of the things that is, needs to be clear about what happens next is that the rest of us, those of us who aren't the ones in the streets necessarily, those of the ones, those of us who are not the activists, the protesters, but those of us in the media and those of us who are fellow citizens need to be willing to believe black and brown Americans when, when they tell us about their lived experiences in their lives. Because if we aspire for a world in which all of our lives matter, meaning that, our, that black lives matter, we have to begin with a framing and with an understanding and, and by creating a world in which these accounts are validated and they're believed. So I'm going to drink some water now, and then I would love to hear from some of you guys and talk. Thank you. Thank you, Wesley. And please speak into the microphone because we are podcasting the event. Good evening. Very good presentation. One of the things that tears my heart is in the last couple of years we have lost 12 and 13 year old boys to police shooting. It was fought allegedly by the police that they had guns that really turned out to be BB guns or just toy guns. Can you address that issue? That really tears the heart, especially young families and parents and loss of siblings and all. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think those are in many ways some of the most difficult. I mean, I, I think we think of the Tamir Rice shooting, for example, in Cleveland. Cleveland's my hometown, um, as well as several others across Tyree King, Columbus. Uh, and then there was one in, in, here in Baltimore last year, although I don't believe the young man died. Um, it was a similar case. I think it was a 13-year-old. The, I think when we look at, I, I think there's a compounding series of issues as it relates to toy weapons and the shootings of people with toy weapons. The first is the reality that there are many toy weapons out there that look like real guns. This is something the officers talk about very often. And that there has been some effort, but not much sustained effort, to pressure these gun manufacturers and makers into changing that. Um, following the John Crawford shooting in Beaver Creek, Ohio, there was a similar push. Um, and they, in fact, passed legislation requiring these toy guns to to use some type of specific markers and that they could not be made to be such replicas that a reasonable person couldn't, couldn't see and couldn't understand. But I think beyond that, it's hard to divorce the reality of race from the outcomes we see as it relates to things like this. What we know, not only with people who use toy weapons, but also specifically with unarmed people, is that the disparity in terms of who is being killed cannot be explained away by some type of criminality. The reason that more young black men are being killed with toy weapons or while they are unarmed is not because of crime rates or neighborhood crime rates. or any, We've run the numbers this way. And, and that it does not account for these disparities. In fact, because most unarmed people who are killed are not in the midst of committing some type of serious crime, as evidenced by the fact that they are unarmed when they're killed. What we've seen is that, in fact, in our data, a white person and an unarmed white person has to do more to get themselves killed by a police officer than a black person does. Well, I'm not saying that anecdotally. We have run the numbers. That is actually true. We've gone case by case and have analyzed them. It speaks to the reality of the world in which we live. We live in a world in which all of us are conditioned to believe black men to be criminal. We are conditioned through our media representation, between the coverage of things like crime and murder, between the images and the stereotyping baked into our society to see black men as, as a threat. And why does when he sees Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman believe him to be a robber when he is not? And 
we, it's uncomfortable for us to have this conversation sometimes, but I think we have to address the implicit biases we all carry with each with ourselves, um, within ourselves, um, and then begin to train our law enforcement to counteract those biases. And so I think that that I think implicit bias very likely plays a large role in the the shootings of not only unarmed men but also those with toy weapons. Yeah, excuse me. Hello. First, I want to say thank you so much for documenting um, the stories of black African people and their interaction with law enforcement. I want to lovingly call you out on the use of language. Okay. Um, The term gray area or different aspects or multiple ways of looking at something, um, I think that plays into um, the systemic racism and institutionalized racism that we face when somehow saying that a black African person just intrinsically for being black there could be a possibility that they are violent aggressive and dangerous when as you said white folk have the pleasure of just going about their lives not considering the things that I do as a dark complexion, six foot four, over 200 pound black man, <laughs> have to think about when I step outside my door. Mm-hmm. I'm also an educator, and what pains me is that the lack of respect of the African black body, that as if we don't feel pain, mm-hmm. and that our lives are un, have no significance. But what I would like to see and maybe suggest for you to explore sooner mm-hmm. is how that affects us because in school I have young African black children each and every day mm-hmm. suffering from the trauma of witnessing this who are beginning to play into the desensitizing of the black body and perpetrating violence on themselves because they see it perpetrated on their family members and community mm-hmm. and that is a, an insidious issue so yeah. I just want more language that critically analyzing the aspect of institutionalized racism and white supremacy as it um, addresses the value of an African black physical body. Mm-hmm. Of course, and, the, and then beyond that, the role in which that the pressures of white supremacy by devaluing the black body. F- f- how that how that manifests not only in the minds of white Americans, but how that even begins to manifest in the minds of black Americans, because we are not immune to the white supremacy in which we live in. Of course. Thank you. Um, you mentioned a, a mental aspect mm-hmm. to all of this. Could could you explain? Um, could you go into a little more depth as far as the mental aspect of? Um, black males and how they play off of it, of the, of the negativity of it. Sure. So, so about, in terms of, are you talking about the response I just gave or are you talking about the men, my mention earlier? Well, I'm talking about the image for one. As far as um, the male is concerned um, and looked at, I'm talking about uh, when someone is looked at as mental, they can be treated differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, and and I think that cuts in two directions. The first, the first is that you, we speak to the stigmatization of of both illnesses as well as um, as well as whether it be drug and alcohol issues or that types of things. But I but I also think that the reality is, as it relates to policing, that we've at this point created and have understood what the best practices are for dealing with people in different states of mental distress. And so because of that, um, it's vital and important that officers who are interacting very often, um, again, it speaks to a breakdown of our broader system of mental health, um, are very often interacting with people who have either been under-medicated, don't have access to the right health care, or are in the midst of some type of crisis. Yet normal police training would, in fact, have them do things that are almost guaranteed to make these incidents worse. So what many, how many officers have been trained is that in a moment, especially with someone who may be armed with a knife or a gun or a club or a steel pipe or a broom handle, 
Many officers are trained to speak authoritatively, to speak loudly, to yell, to draw their weapons, to seize authoritative control. Yet if you're interacting with someone in the midst of a crisis, if you're interacting with someone who maybe is hearing voices, who is having a breakdown, what the experts say is the worst thing you can do is get in their face, pull a gun on them, and start screaming. Um, That is almost guaranteed to prompt them to behave aggressively. While standing back, creating space, speaking calmly, using time as a, as a tool, is, almost more, is guaranteed almost always to slow the situation down and make it so that lethal force can be prevented from being used. I think, that's an impor- I think that kind of is one of the things we've drilled into in our coverage and our reporting on this is how so few of our departments, despite the fact that the police will tell you that one of the biggest things they deal with is the breakdown of the mental health system, and, and they are often interacting with people who should be seeing um, health care providers, um, that despite their knowing this, so many of our departments have been incapable or unable to properly uh, equip their officers with the training and the resources they need to keep these situations from turning into uh, fatal encounters. Um, I'm wondering what your sense is of the folks that you were with um, in terms of how they define Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Um, what did that mean to them, that phrase? And also how people felt when they hear people respond and say things like, well, all lives matter. So I think that Black Lives Matter is a assertion of the value of black life, right? And that, that seems reductive, but and, and redundant, but that is what it is, right? It is an assertion that, if as a young black man or woman speaking it, you're asserting your own value and your own worth. My life matters, and they're doing that not in a vacuum, but within the context of a nation that has, since its inception, systemically undermined the value of those lives. Um, through not only slavery and a system of white supremacy, but but through the various incarnations of discriminatory systems since then, whether that be Jim Crow or redlining, reconstruction, um, housing discrimination, school segregation, and now policing that has racially uh, disparate outcomes. I think that the responses, white lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter, have been... For me, at least as someone who writes about this, almost comical in the ignorance they betray. Um, in a world in which all lives matter, then black lives certainly matter. Um, if when my mother told me going to class matters, I didn't yell back to her, well, but going to English class matters. Well, sure, she said going to class matters. The, uh, or the other way, right? When she said you need to show up at your math classes because you're skipping them to go to journalism class, I, didn't, you know, I couldn't yell back. Um, well, no, all classes matter, Mom, not just math class. When we go to a breast cancer march, we don't show up and start screaming that prostate cancer matters. We understand that, <laughs> that solving all cancers matter. And in fact, today we are working on breast cancer. When a house is burning down, we don't, we don't go scream at the firefighters that they need to throw water on the other house next door to it because all houses matter. Right? The, the, and I think that there is a... And so I just think we have to, but I, but I think that beyond the, the, obvious, <laughs> the obvious wording problems with those retorts, again, I think they betray an ignorance, but also betray a defensiveness that is important and instructive in understanding the world in which we live. If someone else, and if specifically a, an oppressed or marginalized group, asserting their equality threatens you, I think that has to force and prompt some real soul-searching and thinking about your interaction with the oppressive systems. When like, the gay and lesbian um, and gender nonconforming friends talk about their rights and their needs, I, I don't feel threatened by those things because they have rights and they have needs. And I think that if young black men and young black women asserting their equality and their, and their deservingness of equity is threatening to you, whomever you are, I think that says much more about 
the speaker, the person who retorts with all lives matter, than it does about the person asserting their own humanity. And we are taking two more questions. Thank you. I, I, was, uh, I was just wondering, yeah. most of the people who encounter the police and get killed, their encounter didn't involve anything that might require the death sentence. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a traffic stop, might have been shoplifting, might have had uh, disturbing the peace, might have been a bit drunk, and wound up dead. I remember seeing Bernie Madoff on television in a $3,000 suit with his lawyer, uncuffed, being escorted to the police station. And he stole $65 billion. So why didn't they kill him? <laughs> well, I would not advocate the death of Bernie Madoff. I, I would... Uh, <laughs> the point you make is a real one. Now, I talked about implicit bias a little bit, but, I, but I, beyond that, I would talk about escalation and de-escalation. That we live in a country in which our police are not trained they can ever step backwards. They can only take steps forward. That, that there is a, a prism and a spectrum of, of police use of force that escalates and escalates and escalates, but rather does not pause and take, and take steps backwards. That we, we train officers beyond that to be scared. That within these interactions, the role of the officer is not to protect and, and secure the rights of those involved, but rather the role of the officer is to make sure that they go home. I, I think that those shouldn't have to be competing ideals, but the reality is, as they exist currently, they are. Um, and the beyond that, uh, we, we have real issues with the environment in which we allow our police to matriculate as it relates to how they perceive their own roles in our society and, and how they perceive their own, um, what their obligation should be as it relates to escalation versus de-escalation. And on one of our first pieces on police shootings, I remember talking to a chief who said, that so many of these shootings, whether the person was armed or unarmed, were preventable because in too many of the cases, what was essentially happening, now not, this is not all of them, but situations like this where you have so, a traffic stop and the person runs from the car and so the officer chases them for four blocks, jumps over three fences, lands on top of the person, and then a gun falls out. Now they have to kill the person because there's a gun there and they're scared. That in reality, you know, I can think of a case I wrote about in Tennessee where... Um, Three people who are intoxicated on drugs are step into an Applebee's. The Applebee's manager calls the police, and the police catch up with these folks at the gas station across the street. The officer gets out of the car, and he, he takes the ID from the driver. He brings the two other people out of the cars, handcuffing them behind the car. And at some point, the driver decides to pull off, run away. Now, this officer has two of the three people. He's in a gas station. He has the, the license plate of the car. He has the ID of the person in his hand. And the officer decides to jump into the back of the pickup truck as it's pulling off, um, shoot through the back windows and kill the driver, um, leading the car to crash onto the freeway a few, a, a few uh, feet away. He basically made himself a hostage in a runaway driverless car in a world in which he could have <laughs> gone to his radio and said, hey, uh, Jim Jones, who lives here, is running away in a car with this license plate. We don't train our officers to back down. We don't train them to step away. We don't train them to slow things. And I think that as that continues to be the case, situations that, that could be ended <laughs> with someone in handcuffs often ends up with people in hearses. And I think that, and the reality is in a world in which black men and black women are seen as violent physical threats because of our conditioning, not because they are, um, that's only going to continue to impact black and brown people even more disparately. Um, you mentioned um, the word training quite a few times, and I'm really concerned about whether that's a solution to what's happening because mm -hmm. the people doing the training are have biases. Um, yeah. And so from that, I'm wondering whether your spreadsheet is also keeping track 
of the connection between the military hmm. and the police officers because besides that first Saturday scene in Ferguson, I think the one that has uh, stuck with me the most has been those tanks coming mm -hmm. down the streets. The police officers, quote, on, I, I, they're saying they're police officers, but they, they look like people from, uh, you know, the, uh, a mad world movie, the way they're, they're garbed and dressed. They certainly don't look like officer friendly. I, w I would like all officers, for example, to have to wear light pink uniforms. <laughs> I, I think that might because be a non-starter. I think, I think <laughs> that black thing, I mean, yeah. black uniforms, and big helmets, it just makes them think they have to um, be worthy of wearing them. If you can convince them to put the pink on. <laughs> Yeah. Now, but but I think you raised important. I, I, you made you raised a few important points. The the, fir the first is which what equipment are we providing our officers with, and under what circumstances, and what and what strings are coming with that equipment, whether that's training, whether that uh, training even in the equipment we are giving them. You know, so we should probably teach the person we're giving a tank how to drive the tank. Whether we think they should have the tank or not, right? We should, at the very least, make sure they know how it works. Um, I, I think, and, and so that was something that has been raised a lot. We've got departments that, via military surpluses, have received things like bayonets. Um, I, I'm not quite sure why any big city police force might need a bayonet in 2016 or 2017, but they're still being handed out. Um, the, but beyond that, uh, and I think, and I think also with that equipment, a question has to be raised often is. Does it have, it's, the way this equipment's being applied, what is the de desired effect and the desired outcome? When departments are being given this gear, they're told explicitly, in fact, in the, M the MRAP, which is the, the quote-unquote tank that you, you see in Ferguson and elsewhere, uh, the departments are told explicitly, don't use this for riot control. This is not going to work well in groups of big people. It's going to inflame them. Um, and yet, these departments use them time and time again in these ways. But beyond that, I remember August 11th, being in Ferguson, talking to a minister who was heavily involved in the protest, and I was talking to him about how, in those early days, some of them had turned violent. And he goes, part of the issue here, though, is when I show up with my congregation, and we're standing, and church ladies are singing, and the girls are doing their praise dance up and down the sidewalk, and we're chanting justice for Mike Brown, and as we're staring at a, a fully armored man looking at us through a sniper scope, or as we're looking at a line of officers in riot gear, the message being sent to us is that we're at a riot, even though we know we're not. Um, and that, that it creates a physical confrontation that otherwise doesn't necessarily have to exist. Beyond that, one thing we are also looking at is what we've taken a call in the other militarization, that so many of our police officers are coming from, from armed services backgrounds, that we currently are in the midst uh, with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, some of the biggest returns in troops we have seen in the United States of America um, in a generation, and and that those uh, service members have preferred higher status in many of our police departments uh, through the GI Bill. And and one, what does that say about a need for retraining? Um, and, and two, uh, how might what we want from a serviceman or woman differ from what we want from someone patrolling suburban St. Louis or Cleveland or, or even downtown Baltimore. And so there's a big question about that as well. I mean, there are still more questions than answers with that, in part because police personnel records are almost impossible to come by. I can't tell you how many of our, our officers are, are Iraq and Afghanistan veterans because we actually don't know. Um, but I, it's not in one department and certainly not across in any, you know, to any scale. But I think there's a lot to be said and talked about there as well. Can you train someone who has been trained and has served under military rules of engagement, and can you train them to be officer-friendly in your elementary school? There's a question of if that is a thing that is possible. So thank you guys again for having me tonight. So before we leave this evening, I do want to thank you again, Wesley, for this great, um, your great talk. 
Um, I do want to acknowledge one of our board presidents, Mrs. Pat Lasher, who is always, I'm glad she's in attendance tonight, who's been very supportive of Pratt programs here, so thank you for coming. And thank you, the audience, for coming out to listen to this great Writers Live series. We have books in the hallway for sale, so please pick up your copy. And Mr. Lowry will be signing his books here at the desk. So thank you again for coming, and please come out for other programs. Thank you so much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.